0: This morning we celebrate the Lord's Table, which is one of the um, solemn opportunities we have as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to reflect upon all that God has done for us and all that he has provided for us through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's Table is for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ only. It is not for unbelievers because it is a ritual that tells a story that reflects upon something that has happened in the individual's life. Lord's Table focuses on two elements. We have unleavened bread, which is a picture of the person of Jesus Christ as sinless, that he was without sin. Scripture says he who knew no sin was made sin... For us, Jesus Christ was born through a virgin conception and virgin birth. And therefore, he did not inherit a sin nature from Adam. He was born, therefore, without a sin nature. He did not and he was not uh, did not receive the imputation of Adam's original sin, and he did not commit any personal sins. Therefore, he was perfectly qualified to go to the cross and die as a substitute for us to pay the sin penalty on our behalf. The cup represents the payment of that sin penalty. Scripture tells us that all of sin falls short of the glory of God and the, the penalty for sin is described in Genesis chapter two seventeen as spiritual death, when Adam disobeyed God in the garden and ate from the fruit of the tree the knowledge of good and evil. He instantly died, but he didn't die physically. He died spiritually. He was separated from God. He could no longer have a relationship with God. And so when God came to walk in the garden with him, uh, as he did on a daily basis to teach Adam and Eve about himself and about the creation, when God came to spend that time with him that day, Adam and Eve hid. They were afraid from the presence of God, indicating that they had died spiritually and were separated from God. So the penalty for spiritual death had to be paid for by Christ on the cross, and we call that substitutionary spiritual death. It took place between 12 noon and 3 p.m. while he was still alive physically on the cross. He did not die physically until after he said, it is finished. In fact, we often emphasize the fact that the last thing that Jesus, or the next to last thing that Jesus said on the cross was, it is finished, um, pedelesti, meaning that that uh, it was complete, all the penalty for man's sin had, had been paid for on the cross. We often say that, but John also makes a note, two verses before that, says when it was finished, and he uses the same verbiage. So there's emphasis there by God the Holy Spirit to remind us and to make sure we focus on the fact that everything was completed before Jesus Christ physically died on the cross. The cup, which represents blood, the wine, the red wine represents blood, and a blood sacrifice was used in the Old Testament, but that physical blood sacrifice was merely a picture of the physical death that Christ would die on the cross, which itself is... Uh, illustrative of the fact that spiritual death has taken place. See, we can't look at someone dying spiritually. We can't see that empirically. Jesus died physically to show that he had already died spiritually, number one, and that in the resurrection where he conquered physical death, he would demonstrate that all of the consequences of the penalty of sin were also conquered by Jesus Christ and his uh, death on the cross. So that we have salvation through his work alone. We can't add anything to it. There was nothing missing. God the Father in his omniscience knew every single sin that would be committed in human history. He knew every sin that you have committed. He knew every sin that you're going to commit. And in his omniscience, he imputed all of those sins to Jesus Christ on the cross so that the sin penalty was paid for in full. So the issue is no longer sin. The issue is no longer what we have done. The issue is what Christ has done and whether or not we as individuals are going to accept that payment on our behalf. So the Lord's Table is designed as a memorial. That means it's designed to remember something. We're to do this. Jesus said, To remember him, that means we are to focus, we're to concentrate, we're to think during the Lord's Supper about what Jesus Christ has done for us, why it was necessary for him to go to the cross on our behalf, and everything that he did for us. See, at this point, this is the great equalizer, because no matter what... Uh, abilities you have or don't have, no matter what education you have or don't have, no matter what economic position you have or the lack thereof, we all equally stand before the bar of God's justice, apart from the grace of God, as sinners, and we all stand equally in need of Jesus Christ's death on the cross. So we all have to do the same thing, and it's only one thing, and that is to put our faith alone in Christ alone. This is the purpose of the Lord's Table, then, is to remind us that no matter how uh, what we have, how much we've done, how much we've accomplished, however great a personality we may think we have or great a person we may think we are, in the eyes of God we are obnoxious, and we were in need of his son's death on the cross. So we come to the Lord's Table. As I said at the beginning, it is for believers and believers only. It is not restricted by church membership so that if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have uh, equal access to the Lord's Table, and it is for you. We always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are in fellowship. The Apostle Paul warned the Corinthians that the reason that many of them underwent divine discipline was because they were treating the Lord's Supper in a light manner. They were coming to it without confession of sin. They were coming to it in a state of carnality. And so he said, let each one examine himself to make sure that he is prepared and ready to participate in the Lord's table. So we will begin with a few moments of silent prayer. And then I am going to uh, ask, who's the deacon who's doing the bread? You, Jim, if Sexton, if he would please give thanks for the bread, and the deacons will come forward at this time. Let's bow our heads together. The night before he went to the cross, our Lord celebrated the Passover with his disciples. As part of the Passover meal, he took two elements and he invested them with new meaning. The bread he took and he said, this is my body, which is given as a substitute for you, take and eat. Gonna ask Bryce if he would please return thanks for the cup. Our Lord then took the third cup during the Passover meal called the Cup of Redemption. And he said, this cup cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is given for you. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. Let's all stand together and sing hymn number 246. Man of Sorrows, hymn number 246. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's, make, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We reminded that it is your word that you use to uh, produce spiritual growth and spiritual maturity under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. The Apostle Paul reminds us that we are to let the word of Christ richly dwell within us. It is your word that is the source of truth, source of knowledge about the spiritual life, about our relationship with you, and about how we are to grow in advance, that we might be prepared to stand before you at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, Father, as we continue our study in First John, we pray that you would help us to understand uh, these things, the, these verses, and some of the things that are said here are, are poorly translated Others have uh, seemed to be difficult to understand. We pray that you would help us to see how this all fits together. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Galatians chapter 5, we get a list of the fruit of the Spirit. As we look at that list, where we read that the fruit of the Spirit, the production of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. We recognize that a certain evidence is produced in the life of the maturing believer that is related to the character of Christ. And as as the believer advances in spiritual growth, He does so on two, on the basis of two things. To take, go back to where we were last week, he's based on, based on two factors. Number one, the teaching and filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. That it is God the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18 says it fills us. We're commanded to be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. The emphasis there is not that the Holy Spirit is the content of the filling but that he is the agent of the filling, the instrument of the filling. We are filled by means of the Holy Spirit. The Greek uses a dative clause there indicating um, instrumental means. So the Holy Spirit fills us with something, and what he fills us with is what Paul refers to in the parallel passage of Colossians 3.16. That's the word of Christ. So it is the Spirit of God plus the word of God that produces maturity in the child of God. And you can't get there any other way than through those factors. Now what John is saying in 1 John chapter 4 is similar yet different. I find that it is, it's fascinating to make the comparison between John and Paul because they use completely different vocabulary and they come at slightly different perspectives and that's because you have two different individuals, two completely different personalities uh, involved here. You have Paul, on the one hand, who was the man who was trained almost from birth to be a rabbi, a man who has incredib- an incredible intellect, uh, a tremendous vocabulary, uh, incredible ability to construct the most intricate sentences built on uh, uh, impregnable logic. But then we come to John. John wasn't trained to be a rabbi, although there's some indication in Scripture that his family was uh, closely associated, familiar with the priests. They knew who he was. For example, during the time of Christ's arrest, he was familiar to the household of the priest. So there's some indication that he may have come from a family family. Related to the priesthood and the high priesthood, and was known by them, but he is a fisherman by trade. He's a businessman. He's not a trained theologian as the apostle Paul was, but he was a a man who was uh, a man who worked with his hands. He had a business. He and his brother and they had a fishing company. He writes much in a much different manner than the apostle Paul. He writes in a very simple form of Greek. And yet his construction, the way he develops his arguments, even though he tends to use simple sentences, and he tends to use a simple, uh, a simplified vocabulary, what he is saying is, is in some ways much more complex and profound than what the Apostle Paul says. And I've gone over this again and again. I know it, it probably scares some of you when I get into too much grammar. But if you're, we're not careful when we look at the original language of, of 1 John, we can make many, many mistakes. And unfortunately, many of these mistakes have come across in many English translations. And so that complicates things even more and leads to uh, erroneous interpretation if you simply look at the at the English text. Now, I keep stressing this because I want to make sure you understand the structure of this epistle. When you study any piece of literature, it's always important to understand the big picture, to understand the scope, to understand the structure of an author's uh, thought so that you can follow it. It's not just enough to go in and, and look at a verse here or a verse there and maybe spend hours and hours uh, taking apart one or two verses, but if you lose sight of the of the forest while you're examining the cell structure of a leaf then you don't really understand the leaf because that leaf is a leaf in relationship to the forest it's not just a leaf existing uh, independently of the tree and the forest and and the entire ecosystem by analogy so we continuously go back to the structure here now as i have stated before the main body of this letter began in verse 28 and let's just go back there because we have to focus on some vocabulary here. And here John is introducing his main theme, and that is how you and I as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ can have confidence at his appearing. And that's because for the believer we are going to be raptured at the end of the church age. Let's just uh, structure this a minute. Jesus Christ died on the cross in approximately 30 A.D., 50 days later on the day of Pentecost, which has pente, meaning 50 as its prefix, on the day of Pentecost, which was the the Holy Spirit descends upon the disciples, and this begins the church age or the age of grace. The church age is distinct, and the believer in the church age is distinct from believers in the age of Israel. The church age believer is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. He is an individual believer priest. He is part of the body of Christ and the bride of Christ. And so before we can get to Daniel's 70th week, which is the seven-year tribulation, the church must be removed, and the church is removed then at what is called the rapture of the church. When this happens, every single believer, the obedient, disobedient, carnal, spiritual, it doesn't matter, every single believer is raptured and taken to to heaven. Those who are alive and remain at that time, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, are caught up to be with the Lord. The dead in Christ shall rise first. And Paul says, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to be with him in the clouds, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. So this occurs at the rapture. During the seven-year period known as the Tribulation, on the earth, there is going to be a evaluation of believers called the judgment seat of Christ, sometimes referred to by the Greek word the bima seat, the judgment seat of Christ in heaven. And the point of the judgment seat of Christ is to determine rewards or loss of rewards. The purpose of the judgment seat of Christ is not to determine eternal destiny. Eternal destiny has already been determined because the only people of the JSC are believers, those who have put their faith alone in Christ alone. That guarantees their eternal destiny in heaven. So the issue of the JSC is rewards or loss of rewards. Those who lose rewards and have not prepared and have not advanced to spiritual maturity, not producing the works uh, or the fruit of the Spirit, those will be ashamed. This is what John is referring to in verse 28. Now, little children... Abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Now, the key word here, as I pointed out before, is the word that in the English is appears, which in the Greek is "phaneroo." And this word is repeated several times down through 10a. So let's get our structure. We have the key thought is presented in chapter 2, verse 28, and that is to abide so we won't be ashamed. Then we have the first section, which goes from 2.29 down through 3.10a. And the focus there is, represented by the repetition of phanarao but several it's translated differently it's translated manifest it's translated appear it's translated revealed so in the english you won't catch it but in the greek you're going to about every other verse you run into that that same word again and so this is indicating that sooner or later our life is going to be manifested before the uh, appearance of Jesus Christ and we have to be ready 310b down through 323 emphasizes the priority of Jesus' command to love one another. Now, the reason you we, we can make that distinction is, because, as I stated last time, is a literary device that John uses called inclusio. For those of you who have ever been in a military, perhaps you know it, uh, of it in terms of artillery as bracketing. You know, you have, he he sets things apart. He'll make a statement using a keyword, uh, here, and then he repeats the phrase or keyword down at the end of the section, and maybe two or three times in between. And so that's, that includes everything in between, and that's called in Latin an inclusio. And in three, uh, I mean chapter two, verse 29, the issue is, Practicing Righteousness, and in 10a it says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. And we have the idea of manifestation running all the way through there, and it stops at 10a. Last time I made the point that John uses this phrase, By this you know, I just read it from the New King James Version, which translates it a little little differently, uh, but it's, you, you get this same phrase in the New American Standard, By this you know something. When that is followed by a dependent clause, I said this last time, and I'm sure there were some people who go, what's a dependent clause? Or an explanation. And we'll see an example of this in, in our passage today. If he says, by this you know that, by this you know if, by this you know when, that introduces a, a dependent clause is a clause that doesn't make a sentence in and of itself. So if you see that phrase, by this you know, and what follows is an independent sentence, then the by this you know refers to what he just said. But if there's an explanation afterwards, by this you know that, by this you know if, by this you know when, then the by this you know refers to what comes after that. So... We make a break between 10a and 10b. 10b says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not, uh, is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. And that introduces the concept of love, which is the main idea, down through, uh, verse 23. Where we read, and this is His commandment that we should believe on the name of His Son Jesus Christ. That's salvation. That's how we enter into a, an eternal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And subsequently love one another. That's how we, that's how we evidence or manifest our spiritual growth. Notice the key word there. That's how we manifest, that's how we give evidence of our spiritual growth and maturity is by loving one another. We don't uh, this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son and love one another. Those aren't two conditions for salvation. He's not saying you have to believe and love to be saved. You have to believe that's salvation, loving one another, that's spiritual life, spiritual growth. Then we come to verse 24. Verse 24 reads, And the one who keeps his commandments... Let me put it up on the screen. The one who keeps his commandments... Abides in Him. Notice He uses this word abide now. It takes us right back to 1 John 2.28 where the main command is to abide in Him. So what? So you won't be ashamed at the, at His coming. So 1 John 3.24 is going to restate The key idea here, so that we're reminded of what he's talking about, and that is abiding so you're not going to be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ. And, of course, the question is, how do we do that? The one who... Keeps his commandments, abides in him. So abiding is relating to obedience. But when you're disobedient, as we've seen, you're not abiding. That's when you use 1 John 1.9 to confess your sins. And you're instantly forgiven, restored to fellowship, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, and your abiding resumes. So the one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And we covered the doctrine of reciprocity last time, which will develop even more. And that is, the more we abide, the more he abides in us. The more we learn about him, the more he discloses himself to us, and the more we advance. And then John says, and we know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Now, if you look at that phrase, we know by this. Let me see, look at, let me see, there, trying to get my uh new toy to work here, uh, something's not working right, okay, if we look at, never mind, if we look at this section right here, this phrase, um, let me back up one, we know by this. Now, I just got through saying that if what follows the by this can hang by itself, then we know by this applies to what he said before. Is it a, a little grammar lesson here? Does this make sense? That he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Does that make sense? Does that hang as a sentence? No, that doesn't. That's an explanatory clause. So that means that's a dependent clause. So... We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So what John is saying here is how do you know that you're abiding because of the spirit whom he has given us? Now, those of you who are visitors or are new, we've spent a tremendous amount of time in the past studying the doctrine of walking by the spirit and the filling of the spirit. And I don't have time to go back and and recover all of that information, but What John is referring to here is not the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit, but the filling of God the Holy Spirit, because as we have seen, there is a correlation between abiding in Christ and the filling of the Spirit. Let's put it up this way. At the instant that we are saved, we have a positional reality. One aspect of that positional reality is that we are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. Now second thing that's indicative is that we are also, as we're studying in the first hour, indwelt by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is signified by a couple of different phrases. One is the phrase that the Holy Spirit is in you. It looks like this in the Greek, en, plus the dative for ego, meaning you is a singular, en, h u m i n The other word that is used in, is the Greek verb oikeo, o i k e o, and oikeo means to dwell. Now, a synonym for oikeo, but John makes a completely different use of it in order to emphasize this, is the Greek verb meno, m e n o, which means to abide. It can also mean to dwell but this is positional and this is experiential as we've seen again and again and again so we have an experiential reality as a result of our salvation at the instant of salvation every believer is indwelt by God the holy spirit who makes a temple in the body for the indwelling of Jesus Christ and that's what we're studying in first hour in first corinthians uh, chapter 3 verse 16 but experientially we are initially filled by means of God the Holy Spirit. We are in fellowship with the Lord and we are walking by the Holy Spirit, but as soon as we sin we lose that. We quit we lose that fellowship. There disharmony enters into our relationship with God. The rapport is broken because of sin. We're grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit. And so we lose the filling, we lose we quit walking and we stop abiding. We have to confess our sins in order to recover that. So abiding and walking by the Spirit, filling by the Holy Spirit, all refer to the believer's post-salvation experience of rapport with God, where growth can take place because of his relationship with God the Holy Spirit. Now what we see here in in 1 John 3.24 is we know that he abides. How do you know if you're abiding? Because of the Spirit who He has given you. What's the Spirit doing? If you're walking by the Spirit, the Spirit is producing the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. So that's one way we know. So the first way that we can know or have evidence of the manifestation of the filling of the Holy Spirit, manifestation of abiding, is through the fruit of the Spirit that the Spirit is producing in us. A second, but John's going to go on and say there's other evidences of that, Abiding relationship. In chapter 4, verse 1, we read, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, we looked at, began to look at this last time, and the point that John is making is that not only is abiding related to the fruit production of God the Holy Spirit, but abiding or fellowship is also related to sound doctrine. Abiding or fellowship is also related to sound doctrine. Now, I emphasized that at the beginning of our study of First John back in chapter 1, where John is emphasizing the fact that if you don't have fellowship, or you don't agree with the apostles in their doctrine, then you can't have fellowship with the apostles. And if you can't have fellowship with the apostles, you can't have fellowship with God. And so fellowship isn't just something that's relational. It isn't just something that is broken because of sin. It is something that must be based on sound doctrine. If you don't believe the right things, you can't have fellowship with God. Now, the question then becomes, how much? Do you, how much? How How correct does your doctrine have to be to have fellowship? You have to have every detail in line or not. No, because the issue that John's focusing on is your foundational issue, such as the Trinity. If you don't believe in the Trinity, that God exists in three persons, co-equal, co-eternal, then you are not going to believe that Jesus Christ is fully God. That's going to come out in this passage. If you don't believe in the Trinity, you don't have a God, a Jesus, a Messiah, a Savior, that is fully God, undiminished deity, united with true humanity. If you have a Jesus that is somehow God, but he really didn't appear as a man, this was the problem with the Gnostics, which is the problem John is dealing with, not full-blown Gnosticism yet, but the ideas were there. And part of the idea was that Jesus really didn't die physically because God couldn't be united in a physical body. See, as part of their, their thinking, what was called, uh, as a sort of a holdover from Platonic thought, was that the body was inherently evil, and if God had become united with an inherently evil body, just that very fact of that union would have, uh, desecrated deity, would have caused it to be, uh, uh defiled. So, they didn't believe that Jesus was an actual physical true human. Now that has tremendous ramifications in their thinking because if Jesus wasn't truly human but was just sort of an appearance, and the Greek word was doteo, and that's why they were called docetists because they believed that Jesus just sort of appeared to be uh, fully human, but he really wasn't. If Jesus wasn't fully human, then he could not have demonstrated for us by example how to live the spiritual life. And if he wasn 't fully human and couldn 't demonstrate and didn 't demonstrate for us how to live the spiritual life, then, then everything falls apart and, and we don 't have an example, and we 're we're thrown back to some form uh, of legalism, which was what was happening in uh, among these churches as a result of this false teaching. so the sound doctrine that is being emphasized here is is related to the basics, doctrine of the Trinity, doctrine of the deity of Christ, doctrine of the substitutionary atonement, that Jesus Christ died as a substitute for us on the cross, that he paid the penalty on our behalf, and that man's basic problem is the sin problem, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that man cannot solve the sin problem on his own, that he is separated from God. He Every single human being, even those cute little babies that you've had uh, even you when you were a cute little baby scripture says is evil that the heart of man is deceitful and wicked above all things. Now, these are not the kinds of things that that, uh, compliment us or make us feel good, so many people want to reject the Bible because they don't want to accept God's appraisal of man, that despite all of his good deeds, good works, despite all of his wonderful uh, efforts at improving himself, he's still basically evil. But Scripture defines man's problem as sin, and that God's solution is a sinless Savior who died on the cross as a substitute for us. So the solution is that as believers, we are to be very careful what we listen to. We are to have a frame of reference based on solid doctrine to evaluate anyone who comes along and teaches anything. That includes me. You know, Someday I may get into heresy. You never know. I hope not. So John says, "Beloved, do not believe every spirit don 't be credulous. you know don 't just buy everything just because somebody has a has went to a certain seminary or has a certain reputation or that other other Christians seem to speak highly of them don 't believe every spirit, and the word spirit there is not a word that refers to demons. You always have some people who think this passage is talking about uh, determining whether or not somebody's demon possessed or whether or not uh, they have some uh, some uh, demon involved in the situation the term spirit is used as we've studied many times in the past about eight different ways in scripture and here it has to do with thinking test every mode of thought every expression of thought this is how it's going to be be defined at the end of this section see we have another inclusio here between 324 and 46 just skip down with me and look at at the end of 46 46 says by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, just so that, that I can uh, uh, tie a circle around something I've said, we have the sentence in verse verse 6, By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. What follows that? Just remember, there weren't any verse divisions in the original language. What vol- follows is verse 7. In verse 7, can verse 7 stand on its own as an independent sentence? Let me read it. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Is that an independent sentence? Yes, it is. It stands on its own. So we know from our principle of grammar that when John says, by this we know, and that statement is followed by an independent sentence, then the by this we know refers to what he said previously. And so, the by this we know is that it speaks of the evaluation that's covered in verses 5 and verse 6. But the by this we know the spirit of error and the, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error is not talking about demons. It's not talking about personalities. It's talking about thinking and attitude. How do we know the thought that is true and the thoughts that are false? How do we distinguish them? So that is, in context, how John is using the term spirit. Do not believe every spirit. Some is the spirit of truth, some the spirit of error. And it comes from many different sources. But it has to do with thinking. What is the believer to do? He is to evaluate. The Greek verb here is dokimazo, which means to evaluate for the purpose of determining what is correct. This is not a harsh judgment. You know, you always, just a little caveat here, is that you always run into some Christians that as soon as you start critiquing a system of thought or what somebody has taught, they, 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 they come up with a very pious statement that you aren't, we're not to judge. The Bible says judge not that you be not judged, so don't critique what somebody says. That flies in the face of what this verse says. This verse says we are to critique, not in a negative way, not in a, a way that is destructive, but we are to critique or evaluate what is taught? The scripture teaches that at other times we are to actually evaluate people's lives. We have credentials, uh, lifestyle credentials for pastors and deacons in First Timothy chapter 3. In order to accept someone for ordination as a pastor or to accept someone as a deacon, they are to fit those qualifications. How else can you know if somebody fits those qualifications if you don't take the time to evaluate their life? And that is not judging. But throughout Scripture, we are to exercise discernment. We are to think. We are to evaluate. But judging has to do, that command, to judge not that you be not judged, has to do with slander and gossip and and running somebody down. And It has to do with character assassination. It doesn't have to do with with being thoughtful and uh, perceptive and exercising good discernment. This verse emphasizes the discernment aspect. We are to evaluate that which is taught, the, the thinking the, the, that, it, the, that is expressed, the spirit of error or the spirit of truth. So you have all these different thoughts that are taught, and we're to evaluate them to see whether they are of God, literally. It is, uh, in the Greek, we have the phrase ek plus theos, whether it has its source In God, this is not a statement of believer versus unbeliever, but whether or not what somebody is teaching has its origin in God and is the truth, or has its origin in man and is not the truth. It is not believer versus unbeliever. And then in 1 John 4, 2, we have the statement, By this you know the Spirit of God. That's the break. Put a period after that, not a colon or a semicolon, as you have in some Bibles. By this you know the Spirit of God. What follows the, the word God in, in verse 2? Here, Let me read it for you. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. Is the, does that sentence stand alone? Is that a complete sentence? Yes, it is. It is an independent clause. That means that by this you know doesn't refer to the phrase every spirit and following, but it refers to verse 1. How do you know the Spirit of God? Remember, we're talking about um, the end of verse 24. By this we know he abides in us by the Spirit he has given us. One way we know by the Spirit He's given us is the Holy Spirit is producing fruit in the believer's life. A second way is by correct doctrine. By this you know the Spirit of God. What? By testing the spirits, by evaluating what is being taught. That's how you know if it's from the Spirit of God or not, is by evaluation. So evaluation presupposes a frame of reference. To get a frame of reference, you have to have spent time studying the Word of God. If you think that you can understand the Word of God and have an understanding of sound doctrine by showing up at church for 30 minutes or an hour every Sunday morning, you're sadly mistaken. You cannot come to an understanding of Scripture, I don't think, even by listening to good, solid teaching three hours a week. We need it constantly. That's why we have the tape ministry and that's why we offer tapes at no charge is so that people can get the tapes listen to them over and over again, constantly learning the Word day in and day out. So we are to develop that frame of reference in our soul so that we can evaluate what is being taught and use Scripture as the standard. See, it's interesting, every now and then in doctrinal churches I'll run across somebody, you'll teach something, they'll say, well, I don't don't agree with that, I don't think that's right. I ask the question, well, why? And they'll give some reason, well, that disagrees with some doctrinal principle, and they articulate this doctrinal principle, and then I'll say, where do you find that in the scriptures? Well, I don't know, it's in the Bible somewhere. Well, if you don't know where it's found in the Bible, don't talk about it. If you can't demonstrate where something comes from biblically, don't talk about it. Now, I make a point many times in in going back and showing where these things come from biblically so you can know that, but don't just argue autonomously or abstractly from theology. That's bad methodology. That's how people get led astray into error is because there's all kinds of abstract theologies out there that if you just study the theological system, it makes perfect sense. I mean, if you get into certain elements of of, of Calvinism, of of, uh, superlapsarian Calvinism, it makes perfect sense if you grant the presuppositions and assumptions. It's a logically coherent system of thought. But the issue is, is it biblical? Can you go in and support these things from the Scriptures? Now, one of the things that that I want want to point out here is that 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 doesn't mean you're going to proof-text it. By proof-texting, I mean that doesn't mean that, that you go in and you find one verse that specifically states it. You can have a verse, for example, let's take the doctrine of the Trinity. Nowhere in the Bible does it use the word Trinity. In fact, the word Trinity is from the Latin word Trinitas, which was coined by a third-century theologian by the name of Tertullian, who was trying to figure out a vocabulary word to express what the Bible teaches about the persons of the Godhead. In theology, you may take several verses. For example, verse A that talks about the uh, deity of Christ. Then you might have verse B that talks about the, the deity of God the Holy Spirit. And then you have verse C that talks about the deity of God the Father. Then you come along and you have verse D. And verse D talks about the works of Christ, and the works of Christ are the works of deity. talks about different manifestations of the Holy Spirit, verse E. And you have the, the works of the Holy Spirit, and they also are the works or attributes of, of deity. Same thing about in verse, let's say the sixth verse, verse F, related to God the Father. So as a result of that, you do simple logic. You take your six points, and as a result of these six, six points, you can then build to another level of conclusion, and that conclusion is the doctrine of the Trinity. The Trinity isn't stated per se in Scripture, but it is derived by, by simple logic. Simple logic takes a proposition such as uh, A. Proposition A, if A is true, then B is true. And if B is true, then you can extrapolate to the next level and say that C is true. And that's how you develop theology. But you always have to be able, at some point, to be able to reconstruct your line of thinking to get back to Scripture, because Scripture is the key. So when you evaluate for teaching, you have to have a frame of reference. You have to know the Scriptures, and that can only come... um, from being in Bible class and studying the Word. Furthermore, as a believer, you need to be reading your Bible. You need to read your Bible week in and week out, day in and day out, even if it's just five or six verses. Uh, there's a, a Bible out that someone published called uh, Through the Bible in a Year, or the One Year Bible, I think it's called. And that's a great plan and a program for people to get on to read through their Bible once a year, because it familiarizes you with a number of things. You may run into some fuzzy Fuzzy, uh, translations at point. Just, just move past that. Learn to move past things that, that may be a little confusing to you. You don't understand. But you need to read for familiarization. Because when I stand up here in the pulpit and I talk about Jacob or, or Esau or I talk about Meher Shalal Hashbaz or somebody else in the Old Testament, you, if you haven't ever read your Bible all the way through, you don't have a clue what's going on and you can't really understand what is being taught from the pulpit. So you need to be on a regular, steady uh, plan of reading through the Bible, reading every year reading through the New Testament, so that you have an understanding of basic concepts in the Bible. You can do a certain amount. Uh, on your own just by reading the scriptures. If you, you can't go much beyond that, and that's why we have a gift of pastor-teacher. It's sort of like the old analogy of, of mining. Almost anybody can, with very little instruction, pick up a, uh, a pan and go out and pan for gold on any stream, and they might pick up a little color, and they might uh, get a, make a buck or two here along the way, but it takes a mining engineer to get to the real nuggets. Well, any of you can go out and mine in the Scriptures just by reading it on a day-to-day basis. It takes a pastor teacher to be able to come along and dig into the Scripture and give you those real nuggets. But you don't have real, any real appreciation for that if you're not doing a little panning along with the uh, regular teaching. So we develop our frame of reference for evaluation by regular attendance in Bible class, listening to tapes, and regular Bible reading. So we're not to believe every spirit, but we are to evaluate the spirits, and that's how we know the spirit of God. So two ways we know the spirit of God now. One is production of fruit. Second is right doctrine. Now we come to the second part of um, our, excuse me, I want to clear up one problem here, and that is this question of the meaning of God. We come to the second part of verse 2, and we read, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. Now, remember, don't don't make the mistake of shifting the meaning of spirit here. Remember, you have spirit of truth and spirit of error down in verse 6, and these are not personalities. This is not a demon. This is not an individual. This is a thought. So... In the second half of verse two we read every spirit that is every thought every teaching that con- that acknowledges the word confess is the Greek word homologeo, the same word used in first John one nine and it means to admit or acknowledge something so every teaching every um, one who teaches uh, and admits that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God his teaching is from God this is the term of God is not saying well he's a believer and the spirit who doesn't uh, acknowledge that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God, and that that's an unbeliever. So it's real easy to make that jump to that conclusion. But that's not how John has used this phraseology up to this point. We have to go back and look how John uses terminology. In 1 John 3.9 he said, No one who is born of God practices sin. We studied that, and literally it's not practices, it's does, poieo, no one who is born of God does sin because his seed abides in him. And that's talking about the fact that when we're abiding in Christ, walking by the Spirit, we don't sin. When we stop walking by the Spirit, we uh, that's when we do sin. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Well, the children of God here, the children of the devil, are not believer versus unbeliever in context, but the believer who is abiding, operating on the word of God and demonstrating that he is a child of God, versus the believer who is operating on human viewpoint, not operating on the scriptures, operating on false teaching and living in carnality. He's living like a child of the devil. So here we see that that John uses the phrase of God not to refer to salvation but to, to to relate to his spiritual status whether he is walking by the spirit abiding in Christ or not so we come to the second part of 1 John 4:2 every spirit every teaching that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh that is that he is of God this is consistent with this is the spirit of truth Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He was not only undiminished deity, but he was true humanity. He was born through virgin conception and virgin birth, and he's 100% human and had a a mortal human body just as you and I do. Verse three: and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So this is a, a teaching that does not admit or acknowledge Jesus as Christ. So. Jesus, is, Jesus came in the flesh. So we have ways in which we know that we are abiding in Christ. First is the Spirit is producing fruit in us. Second, we are testing uh, teaching. Third uh, is Christological, whether or not Jesus is fully man who appeared corporally in human flesh. That is another uh, way of knowing if the source is the, the source of teaching is the Holy Spirit or not. John goes on to say every spirit every teaching that is that does not admit Jesus is not of God that is the spirit of error. Further, he says, "...and this is the spirit of the Antichrist." This is the same kind of teaching that is going to characterize that of the Antichrist, that is, the future one-world ruler who is going to come as a substitute Messiah. We have studied the Antichrist in detail, and I don't want to take the time to go into that now. He goes on to say, "...of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. The spirit of Antichrist is the denial of who Jesus Christ is." Now, let's go back briefly and review what John has already told us about this teaching of Antichrist. In 1 John 2.18, we read, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know it is the last hour. And then in verse 22, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Now, he says of this that the Antichrist, this same teaching, is one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah. And then in Second John 1, seven he adds something to this. It says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the world. This is the deceiver, the Antichrist. Now, what's interesting is he uses this phraseology gone out into the world. They were somewhere else before they were in the world. Now, to go out into the world, if you're already in the world, you don't go out into the world. That means that for them to go out into the world, where were they before they were in the world system? That means these are talking about believers who have succumbed to false teaching. These are not unbelievers. You can't go out into the world if you're already there. The only way you can go out into the world is if you're not already, uh, I mean, if you're already a believer. So the principle that he is articulating here is that it, it, these false teachers have come from within the context of The apostolic body. We studied that already. We saw it back in 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 if you're in First John two. We saw it back in that same section, uh, verse two nineteen. First John two nineteen. John said they went out from us. In other words, they were part of this apostolic body at one time. They were believers, but they they gave it up. They they succumbed to false doctrine. And if you don't think that's that's possible then I'm sorry, but you live in a naive world. I have known uh, seminary students, good friends of mine, seminary graduates, who have uh, adopted some of the most atrocious, heretical positions uh, known to man. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that just because you went to seminary that you're guaranteed free from error. And a seminary professor used to say, no, you're just going to be able to promote false doctrine in a much more sophisticated manner. And you're going to really be able to deceive people. But I have known people who uh, went through seminary who are clearly believers and who have bought into all kinds of absurd theological positions. This can happen because of of carnality, because of arrogance and many other factors as well. So John talks here in 1 John verse 4 that that. These who go out have picked up the spirit of Antichrist because they've rejected who Jesus Christ is. Then we come to verse 4. Verse 4, he gives us another test. And this is another contrast. And he addresses these, these believers. He says, you are of God. In other words, you've held the faith. You, you, the congregation he's addressing, have not succumbed to the false teaching. They may be confused. They may be questioning him. They may not understand all the issues. That's why he's writing the epistle. But he says, you are of God. You're still abiding, and you're still walking by the Spirit. You are of God, little children. That's his term that he uses to address the entire uh, congregation that... Uh, that where he had pastored in Ephesus. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. You have not allowed them to deceive you. See, this is the same thing that he speaks of back in chapter 2, where he writes to them and he says, I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. Uh, And he repeated that again in chapter 2, verse 14. They have overcome the deceptions ...of this false doctrine that Jesus did not come in the flesh. It says, "...you are of God, little children, and have overcome them, that is, these spirits, these false ideas, ...because greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world." And that when, now this is a fascinating verse because so often we want to take it out of context and apply it, especially in the arena of demon possession. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Let's think about this in context. He's not talking about salvation or positional reality at this point, although I think that's implied here. He is talking about the fact that they have been able to overcome false doctrine because their relationship with God the Holy Spirit defined as abiding back at the end abiding in Christ and and that's what he's talking about at the, as per the uh, last verse of chapter 2 excuse me last verse of chapter 3 that he is uh, the spirit is is in them that they are using this in such a way that they're able to overcome the teaching the false teaching that is coming out of the cosmic system, and that is that Jesus is not the Messiah. Now, when he states this, he says, You're from God, little children, and have overcome them. Because, and this is a statement, it's a truism, this is a gnomic principle. A gnomic principle is one that is a, 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 a general truth that is true at all times. And so he's taking this principle, greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world, and he is applying it to this particular situation. Now, in its core meaning, greater is he who is in you, who is in you? The Holy Spirit, and that is a reference to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the principle that the Holy Spirit's power is greater than the one who empowers the world. And so you can't apply this particular passage to the issue of demon possession in the Christian, that because the one who is in you is greater than Satan, greater than the demons, you don't need to worry about that. But that's an application of the principle. In context, that's not how John is using this. John is using this to tell them that the reason they have overcome the false teaching, the spirits of error, is because they have been walking by the Holy Spirit, they've been abiding in Christ, they have been assimilating doctrine, and they've been testing these these uh, false teachings back in four one. And so, on the basis of that, they have been because of the application of the filling of the Spirit in their own life, they are able to overcome uh, the teaching that is coming out of the world system. Then we come to the last test in uh, verse five. Now, the last test is a contrast between the believer who is operating on divine viewpoint, the revelation of God incorporated in his word, and the believer who is operating on cosmic thinking, that is, the thinking of the world, the thinking that is produced by arrogance, self-sufficiency, and autonomy. And we get the same thing. He says they are from the world, that is, these these false teachers, they are of the world, to cosmu. They are from the source of the world, therefore they speak as from the world. Repetition of that same phrase, from the source of the world, and the world listens to them. Notice what John has already said about the world back in chapter 2. First John 2.16, he states, "...for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world." Now, if we look at the context of 1 John 2.16, what he has just said in verse 15 to believers is do not love the world. Now, you can't say don't love the world unless it's possible for them to love the world. So what he's that those who are from the world are not those who are unbelievers, but those who are believers who have failed to apply the principle of 1 John 2.16 to not love the world or the things in the world. In verse 17, 1 John 2:17, And the world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. And then he goes on and mentions the two verses we've already gone to, and that is that uh, it's the last days, and this is the spirit of the Antichrist, that he is operating on this human viewpoint, arrogance. Now, we come to verse 5 of chapter 4. They are from the world. These false teachers, their their thinking originates from the world. It is consistent with the human viewpoint thinking of the world, and therefore the world listens to them because they haven't exchanged doctrine for 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 their false human viewpoint. Remember the principle in Romans 12 is that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Paul says, "Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind." We have to exchange that human viewpoint that we have in our soul for the divine viewpoint of scripture. That's how we progress in spiritual growth. Those who fail to Are still gonna, their teaching is still gonna be attractive to the world. That's why so many churches are so popular. That's why many churches have a message that attracts many people and they build enormous churches is because their message is basically a message that is attractive to those who are not exchanging divine viewpoint for human viewpoint. Their appeal is still to people who are uh, thinking like the world and therefore they attract them through entertainment. They attract them through programs. They attract them through everything but sound uh, biblical teaching. And now we come to the last part of the comparison, which is verse 6, where John says, We are of God, in contrast, he who knows God listens to us. A mark of the abiding believer is positive volition. He is responsive to those who are teaching the truth. If you're not abiding in Christ, then you're not going to be responsive to those who are teaching the truth. But if you are abiding in Christ, filled with the Spirit, then you're going to be responsive to those who are accurately teaching the Word of God. We are of God. He who knows God listens to us, that is, the apostles. He who is not from God does not listen to us. The person who is not abiding, not walking, who is still operating on cosmic thinking, doesn't listen to us. And it's by this, whether they're positive or negative, that we can discern the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So in this section, John gives us several examples of how we can uh see or the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in our own lives, walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, and as we perceive the manifestation of the Spirit in our own lives through the fruit of the Spirit and through correct doctrine, we can know whether or not we are prepared to stand before Jesus Christ to the judgment seat of Christ when he is manifest, when he appears at um, the rapture with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word and be reminded once again that the reason we that, that you keep us alive on the earth after salvation is for us to grow and mature as believers, and that that as we grow and mature, we will eventually be evaluated for that growth and maturity, whether or not we have made your word a priority in our life, whether or not we have made spiritual growth a priority in our life. And eventually we have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and we need to do so in a way in which we will not be ashamed. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity right now, right where they sit, to make that decision. You don't have to join a church. You don't have to reform your life. You don't have to make a commitment to Christ. All you have to do is believe. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Jesus said, he who believes in me has eternal life. The Apostle John wrote, he who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already. The issue is belief. Belief that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins. Belief that by faith alone in Christ alone you have eternal salvation. That's all that is necessary. And right now, right where you sit, you can decide. Do you believe in Jesus Christ died for your sins or not? That decision will determine your eternal destiny. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied today that we might press on to spiritual maturity. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.